Starting all over again, it's gonna be rough on us. But we're gonna make it. It's breakfast with Bob. Thank you, Poncho Man. So good to have you back again. This is Breakfast with Bob, not quite Kona edition. We are brought to you by Hoka One One Credo Tri, Four Seasons Hualalai, Challenge Daytona, Form Goggles, Canyon Bikes, Norma Tech, Amp Human, VeloFix, UCAN, and our Challenged Athletes Foundation, our next guest, just broke the one-hour record in Canada, going 51.304 kilometers in an hour. Mr. Lionel Sanders, the professional cyclist, joins us. How you doing, Lionel? Bob, that uh, that uh, Poncho Man song gave me a little teary eye for a second there. You know, don't you think we missed that a lot? Yeah. We need to get back there. I, I, I really do. I really feel like uh, like I can feel that energy and everything of us. I just, I, my my body is there right now on that sandy uh, with the two chairs and the you know usually you have the black rocks. So uh, I find you right now, but I can feel my my body is there right now. I and, love uh, it. Yeah. So we've got Challenge Daytona coming up. And it is the PTO Middle Distance World Championship, $1,150,000 at stake. You are the defending champion from that race. And obviously, the velodrome and then going and running a 5K PR is part of the plan leading into this race? Yeah, well, I mean, first and foremost, it's been a very strange year, as you know. And uh, we were here in the U.S. for... Well, I think we got here February and then we ended up staying longer than I'd ever stayed five, five months. And we basically were just waiting out. Remember the Lubbock race was supposed to come, come back. And then that got canceled. And then, uh, like St. Then I was like, Oh, maybe I'll do Ironman St. George. And, and then I went there did a training camp there and it was a beautiful course. I was so excited. And then it looked like that was going to get canceled. And then we were like, let's just go home. I mean, my, probably nothing's going to happen this year. So so then when we went home, then it was just like, I got to do something. Like, I just, I felt like so apathetic. Like, I was like, I, I don't know what I'm doing with my life anymore. Like, I, I, I had no goals for myself. And whatever to the racing, for me, I need goals. Like, I need personal goals. And so, so then it just became like, what can I do that is not going to get canceled? And that I can, you know, two months from now, I can devote myself and then I can go do it. And so the, the logical one was to do my 5K. It was something when I first did that 5K in 2013, that was like a big dream of mine was to break 15 minutes. But like the A goal then was to run in the 1430s for me, uh, because all the guys who I knew who were good runners, like Jeff Skull, for instance, a guy who went full ride to the States, he ran 1402. So this was a different era. Now all the triad, now all the short course guys are running under 14 minutes. But, but then when I was doing it, it was like sub 14, you're a, you're a pure runner. Right. Yeah. And so for me, 1430 was like, okay, if I could do 1430, that would be a, like a life, absolute a standard life goal. So, so I set that goal for myself to try and run into the first to break my PV, but then to try and run in the 1430s. And then the biking thing, the, the, the one hour thing, that's something that was born really, in 2015, when I did some aerodynamic testing with uh, Louis Garneau at, at the vel at that velodrome in Milton, and it was a couple of guys I was with, and we were talking about like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to try and do the one-hour record and everything? And at that time, it was uh, Ed Veal had 
held it like a previous time, his first go at it, and it was about 47 kilometers. And then he redid it in 2017 and went 48 and a half. And so anyways, that's when that was born. And then, and then basically I, I re, uh, reinvigorated that, that feeling and that, that dream and said, all right, let's, let's try and do it. And, um, so that's what I did. I set those goals and basically devoted myself to them for two months. And you also, Jens Voigt is one of your guys, right? That's somebody who's been here. His 51.11 from 2014. You got yeah. that one too. Yeah, well, it was, um, I mean, funny story. I, when I rode in 2018 at the Carson Velodrome, I, whatever, my math is horrible, which is, which is funny to say, because like I actually took like math in university for several years, but uh, I was riding around the track and I was doing 4K repeats in five minutes. And so I knew that a five minute 4K was 60K an hour and a six minute 4K is 40K an hour. So I just split the difference in my head and I said, oh, so five minutes, I'm doing, I'm doing 45 kilometers an hour, right? Or I'm sorry, 50 kilometers an hour. And so I was like, oh, I mean, I can break this record. But then I, if you do the math on that, it's not 50, five minutes. It's not, uh, it's not linear. Speed's not linear. And so uh, I was not riding record pace. And so then when I actually went and did real testing with the intention to try and break the record, I was like, holy crap, 48.5 kilometers an hour is actually really hard on the velodrome. And so anyways, I, I really had to learn the track. I had to get my equipment in order. Obviously, I had to get my power a lot better than it was. Um, and so I did that for two months. And I, I did four training sessions on the track, um, four two-hour sessions. And I used them to the best of my ability, really, to just learn technical aspects of riding the track and test my equipment. And so then, yes, going into the event, a you know goal number one, break the Canadian record, which was 48.57 or so. Goal number two, break 50 kilometers, which I thought would be really cool, be the first Canadian over 50. And then, of course, the absolute A goal was to ride further than my my one of my heroes, Jens Voigt, with the uh, we all know the saying, uh, you know, you're, I love the feeling when you're riding hard, you get a little bit of blood, the taste of blood in the back of your mouth and you say, shut up, legs. Right. And uh, so then that was that was the ultimate goal was to ride as far as Jens. And so so it was I achieved the ultimate goal for myself, which was I rode 51.3. His was 51.1 that first track. You own them. That's awesome. And, and but how did how did your legs feel after that thing? After going, try, you can't move I, at all, right? One position. No, it's horrible. Yeah, you don't uh, mentally. There's no way to prepare for that other than to just do one, and then you'll you'll know because, um, like for instance, about 20 minutes in, I I wanted to just adjust my neck, like just put my neck down, or you know, when you're riding outside on the road, you can put your neck down, stretch the back of your neck out. But because you're going so fast and the corners come literally every four seconds, you're turning every four seconds, there's no opportunity to move. If you go like this, you're literally there's these yellow things that you can hit, you'll crash because they're so you don't cut the course. And then you, you know, I mean, you go way up the side of the track. And so you can't adjust in any way your, your, your head. And as well, there was like a little camera on the left side here. And I literally just glanced over it with my eyes one time. And I was, because it was where it was, I was going into the corner and I literally went five feet up the wall just with a little glance to the left of my eyes. That's how, because the speeds and everything, that's how engaged you have to be. And so 
So you don't really feel, of course, you're like extremely painful, like, you know, hour or sorry, the final 10 minutes, you know, very, very painful. But you don't realize the damage you're doing until you get off the bike. And literally my glutes had not been changed. The muscle recruitment pattern in my glutes had not been changed for one straight hour, 390 watts straight for one hour, no change of recruitment. And uh, my glutes have never been more sore in my entire life. I tried to just to reach down, just to undo like my, my shoe. And I, I couldn't reach my, my foot. Like literally it felt like my rip, my glute was going to rip off my, my back of my body. It was so tight. So that's something that, you know, um, if I ever did one again, I would definitely spend more time in the TT position at that pace to try and, uh, try and get used to it. Cause I did a lot of my training in the uprights. I did, I was progressing in the TT position and I got to a point where I did 30 minutes uh, other than the stuff I did on the track, but on the trainer, I got to 30 minutes at about 380 Watts. Um, but nothing prepares you for that second 30 minutes where, where, yeah, the muscles just never change. So it's, it's interesting. We've been doing some interviews leading up to this and Andrew Starkowitz has just happened to mention there's a couple of velodromes near him and Sebastian Keenley mentioned there's a couple of velodromes near here. Do you think a bunch of the guys are out there uh, doing a lot of velodrome work just because that's what you're going to do when you're on the speedway. Yeah. I mean, I, I, they're smart if they are doing that because, uh, I mean, Sarkowicz would know cause he's raced the Daytona race, but, um, I do believe that's one of the advantages that, that us who have done it have over the people who haven't done it is, I mean, it is a very unique race. Yes. There is no relief. Like it's just like the velodrome. If you're, I mean, if you rely on the bike, like I do, I mean, you don't, you're not, you're going to turtle your head. And you're going to basically lay down the most power you can for an hour, 40, hour and 45 minutes. There'll be no opportunity to get out even one single time, no opportunities to adjust your neck and head very much. And so you better train that because if you don't train it, that's the only race ever in my entire career where the final mile, I was just praying that my hamstring didn't, didn't uh, stop working because I could feel the cramp coming. And it was like, if I move ever so slightly just to like itch it or something, I'm going to collapse. And that's the first time I ever had experienced that. And I believe it was because such a unique bike, the demands were so unique. What was really fun about that race last year, you and, and Pablo were basically running side by side for what, seven solid miles and surging. And for you, uh, come being a track guy from way back, having that type of race where you're side by side and you're surging. How fun was that? I didn't know what was going on, to be honest with you. Like it was like, uh, I never seen anything like it. I guess that's common in the ITU stuff, but I okay. literally never, I've never, I've never raced an ITU race. So, um, so, so that's what, uh, Pablo said to me afterwards was, um, I just was trying to, I figured you didn't have that background. And so I figured I could break you with that type of race. And so, yeah. I mean, he almost did because like every time it happened, I was like, I, I was, the gap was opening every time. Um, but then I started to understand what was happening and what he was trying to do. And I realized that it was more weakness. It wasn't, it wasn't because he was like, it, the pace was too slow or something. The continuous pace was quite high. And so his, his, his strategy was this pace is quite high. I'd like it to slow down a bit. So I'm going to surge break his spirit and that'll allow the pace to be slower once he's dropped. 
Um, and so once I realized that, then I knew how to win this race. And that's when the tables started to turn. And that happened at about four miles or so when I, when I realized that. But there's a video. Talbot was out there with his yeah. camera. And there's a video where, you know, because there's no one out there on that back stretch. And it was like, you know, when you're and you're in the moment, you want to you want to enjoy it with someone. Obviously, I was enjoying it with Papa, but I look over at Talbot and I'm like, what? I don't know what's going on. Right. What is this? What is this? I've never seen this type of racing before. So um, you're not going to fool me again with that one. I, I, I understand that tactic now. So when I look last year, it was a, a one mile swim, 37.5 bike, 8.2 mile run this year. It's 1.2 swim, 49.7 for the bike, and 18K or 11 miles for the run. Does that, those distances, is that an issue, you think? Well, I think last year the swim was a little long, just by even the, the fastest swimmers averaged, mm -hmm. like, I want to say, like, 118 per 100, which they definitely didn't yeah. average 118 per 100. Um, so, so, yes, the, the swim is going up approximately 400 meters, but I don't believe it's actually going up 400. I believe it's going up maybe, like, 200 meters. Um, and then the bike goes up 20 kilometers and the run goes up. Yeah. As you said, probably about five kilometers or so. Yeah. So it doesn't matter. I mean, this is the, this is the, the, the distance. So, uh, it, it, you know, I can, you can't let in, um, mental weakness, like, oh, it's not the complete set. Cause, cause the reality is a set, it's a 70.3 swim, but 10 kilometers less of biking and three kilometers less of running. So obviously for me, uh, it's not advantageous. I'd rather see the swim be shorter and the bike and the run longer. But uh, if you can put up a good performance under this scenario, uh, then you certainly can put up a good performance, let's say, next year at 70.3 Worlds. So that's how my mind is operating that who cares? I'm going to do a good performance regardless of the distances. So I know you like being involved with all-star games and here you've got Alistair Bromley, Sebastian Keenley, yourself, Ben Hoffman, Rudy Von Berg, Cameron Wirth coming off the Vuelta. So he'll be riding pretty well. Javier Gomez, Tim O'Donnell, Andrew Starkowitz, Sam Long, and then, you know, some of your ITU guys as well. Vincent Luis, were multiple time world champion and uh, Gustav Eden and Christian Blumenfeld. That's just the beginning, right? That's like 10 out of 60. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When you look at a field like that, do you, when you prepare for a race, do you look at who the, who's going to be there? Uh, or does that even matter to you? You just put your head down and go. Oh, I mean, you're, you're, you're kidding yourself. If you don't look at, look at the, the start list. I mean, the nice part about this race, it will behave differently than like, let's say 70.3 worlds, 70.3 worlds. This is going to be a big problem, right? On a course like this, this would be a massive problem because of the 10 meter draft zone in Ironman racing. So in Ironman, it's called a 12 meter draft zone, but the reality is it's from the back of the bike to the front of your wheel. So it's really 10 meters because the bike is two meters. Right. Big problem when you got 20 guys coming out of the water side by side and there's no hills. It's a huge problem at the speeds that we're going to be going. I mean, last year I averaged 48 and a half kilometers an hour for 60 K. You, the draft zone is not adequate at 10 meet. I mean, like with absolute certainty, there's a very large draft tail coming at, at that speed and it's a cumulative draft effect that happens. So this would be a huge problem if that was, but it's not, it's a PTO race that is going to be a 20 meter draft zone. And it's the nice part here is it's on a speedway. So you can set up, if you recall in Samarin, they had uh, signs that said, check your distance. So they're going to do something similar at this race, maybe with cones actually out there on the course, 20 meters apart. So you know 
and it's only four kilometers around the track. So uh, the actual draft zone will be easy for both us, the athletes and the officials to police. So that's definitely a win for me because uh, uh, the opposite would be a big problem. So um, in terms of strategy, it's a much different strategy. If this was 70.3 worlds, there would be one strategy and one strategy only. And it would be you ride 440 watts until you see the front. And if you don't see the front, you never were going to see the front anyway, and the race is over. So it doesn't matter. You can walk in the marathon, no problem. This is a different, this is a different animal because it should be fair. It should be a, a, a non-drafting bike, truly non-drafting bike. And so that's, uh, that's the question. What is, how should you race a truly non-drafting bike, right? This is something that we're not super uh, familiar with because most of the, the most of the races we do have a different draft zone. And so I don't know the answer to this yet, how, how to race it. it. I think for me, it would probably depend on like my swim deficit. If it's a, if it's a large deficit, then your best bet, you know, you're going to have to run well. So your best bet is probably to ride the highest sustainable power for one hour and 45 minutes with no surges dead steady as best you can, because that's going to lead to the best absolute run speed. If on the other hand, I had a half decent swim and I was only a minute and a half to two minutes down, which for me is good. Yeah. Um, then maybe you want to try and see the front pretty quickly. So I don't know. I don't know the answer, but yeah, I mean, I'm very aware of everyone on that start list. And um, I train every single day with the one guy who, who really motivates me is Gustav Eden. So um, yeah. I, I've been training every day basically since, well, basically since this train, this period started, but since I saw him dominate 70.3 worlds, he's, he's been in my mind of like, okay, that's next level. That's pretty next level. I guess we're all going to have to lift our game now if anyone else wants to win 70.3 worlds. So prize money wise, when you've got, you know, $1,150,000 on the line, when people haven't been able to race all year, obviously it's not like anybody's not focused exactly on this race. The fact that PTO has put this money up and has been so involved in, you know, making sure that you guys are taken care of, how important has that been for you guys this year? I mean, it's massively important. It's, it's, uh, it's basically bankruptcy is the other, the other side. And yeah. um, so for, for a lot of us, it's, it's what's allowed us to keep going, to keep surviving. And so um, it's wonderful that the organization has come about and sort of came, you know, from their perspective, kind of came around at a bad time because, because of all this, because they would like to have had the Collins cup and that sort of thing. But um, I think they, they really showed loyalty to us. And so I think, you know, the converse of that is that we will show loyalty to them, uh, which I believe is, is what we need. We both need to trust each other if we're going to have a meaningful impact on the triathlon world. So I do believe we're on, a, we're, we're, we're on the same page. And so now really the, the, the question for us, and this is basically part one, is, is what's our business model, right? And so this race hosting a massive, you know, race with all the best guys, with great coverage, this is sort of phase one of the business model of, you know, how are we going to start to generate some revenue? How are we going to get more eyeballs on this thing? How are we going to get, you know, more interest in our sport that I believe if, if you've got all of these, these, these events on TV that last hours, let's say, you know, pro cycling and stuff, why can't triathlon also be something that on a Sunday afternoon has a live triathlon that, mm -hmm. you know, let's say half a million to a million people are watching. 
Well, there's really no reason, especially when you're on a speedway, right? And you have to follow the NASCAR formula and put put cameras on each person and give people's heart rates and wattage sure. and all the rest of that. Give people sure. all the all the news with the obviously Challenge Daytona, then Miami, right? There's going to be a Miami race, and uh, knowing Bill Christie, there's other tracks around the country that also have swimming access this style of racing isn't just going to be a one-off. There's going to be multiple events moving forward. That's uh, that really, I think fit exactly into the way you race. This is, this is a pretty dynamic style of racing is I see that there's going to be an option besides just being an Ironman guy. Do you see that as a positive for the sport that you have this, this ability to race at pretty much cookie cutter type of locations but also with, uh, you know, with 20 meter draft rule, et cetera, all of that going, going along. Kona will always be the, the pinnacle. So yep. we're, we're, we'll just, we'll just put a period on that. But at the end of the day, I mean, I like racing. <laughs> I don't care where it happens. Right. And of course I love ITU racing too. Unfortunately, I didn't listen to Mrs. Boudreaux in grade nine and go switch, start swimming. She, she bugged me all the time. So that, that ship set sail, you know what I mean? And so my ITU career, you know, if I, I think if I was born or whatever, if I, if I had got into swimming younger, maybe, maybe I could have done that. So that's, that ship's gone. But this non-drafting, you know, middle distance non-drafting, I think it's a different, it's a different, totally different thing than the ITU stuff. Of course, the ITU is amazing. Awesome racing. Very, very interesting. But I believe this is also very interesting and relatable because this is this is the this is the distance that, that everyone else is racing, right? The amateur side is racing. This is the this is the non-drafting stuff, and so so I definitely see a viable, you know, circuit, if you will, that if if done properly, of course, you know, coverage is one thing. I think also we can take a page out of UFC's book of like. You ever watch any of the week leading into a big UFC event? They do the every single day. They come out with uh, an embedded episode. Yep. And so you you learn about these people. You're going to. So even if you're just kind of a guy who just watches, you know, the pay-per-view and doesn't really know much. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, leading into it, you'll at least know everything about the contenders who are performing on Saturday. And they do an excellent job of that. And so, it, you know, I think that's going to have to be part of this if we want it, you know, people to tune in and stuff is. It just doesn't start and end at the race. It's it's about building the building the race, building the personalities of these people, so that you want and the rivalries, so that you not only do you want to watch a race, but you want to know about how did that athlete do, and and I think that's a very important piece that can't be overlooked. That we will need to figure out how we're going to go about doing that. So this year, this past year in Kona, you didn't have a good one, you, but you're one of those guys who learns from everything that happens, good or bad. What did you take away from the, this year's Kona? Oh, man. I mean, the big thing is I started working with David Tilbury Davis again. And, um, you know, ah, there's so many pieces. It's such a big, big thing. How many hours do you have? Um, plenty. We got plenty. It's, it's uh, first and foremost, life is short. Like, my career is going to be over. I'm going to be like whatever. Let's say Jan's the, let's say Jan is the pinnacle in the sense of he's taking care of his body. He does all the right things. He won at 39. He, uh, let's say he was the top contender at 40, maybe again the top contender at 41, and maybe again at 42. So let's say 42 years old is like the, the limit that someone could win Kona at. 
So I'm 32. So at best, this is absolute best scenario. I've got 10 more opportunities to, to try to win Kona. So life is short, man. It's like, I wasn't fully committed. I've not been fully committed to this thing. Like I was fully committed in 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Something happens, I believe, when you, you reach a level for some reason. I mean, I've self-sabotaged. When I look at my life, yeah. I've self-sabotaged myself multiple times in my life. Absolutely. In, in high school, I was a good runner. I remember I got letters from the United States, you know, good universities in the United States saying, hey, we're going to be at the provincial champs. We're going to be watching you. Self-sabotage. Didn't put any effort for it. Didn't care. Smoking, you know, stupid crap. Like not like self-sabotage. And then, you know, then I went back to university and I had the opportunity to turn my life around then. Partied, partied it all away. Self-sabotage. And then I finally get back into triathlon. I'm doing good, doing good. Oh, man, I got passed by Patrick Lang with three miles to go. Next year, man, I'm winning this thing. Self-sabotage. Cut my ties with David. Stop doing all the things that I was doing right. Uh, you know, my biking was my best element. And my biking set me up. You know what I mean? I could run well off hard bikes. So, so instead I change everything about the bike, the, this frame, every, the position, the cleats, every piece of the puzzle, self-sabotage. So I have this, this tendency for whatever reason to self-sabotage. And so anyways, I'm going on a ramble train right now, but. That's a good um, ramble train because it's true. That's, you get to a certain point where you know that, okay, I have a path here. I'm going to throw that path away. And just I don't know why. I don't know the psychology of it. I, I don't understand. But yeah. long story short, I, I, I come to this conclusion. Uh, and I was starting to turn it around in 2019. You know, I was still down the pathway in the beginning of 19. And I overtrained myself and I got the stress fracture. Yep. But I did recover from that. I did everything. And that's kind of when I started to turn right around then. Um, and then I, and then I, you know, I, I was the last qualifier in Montrombant and then I made it to Kona and, you know, I'm so glad I was there to witness Jan Ferdino and what, what's possible for a human. Cause that was an absolutely amazing thing. And I think you need, you know, it's one thing to watch it on TV. It's another thing to be out there and feel what the heck is going on. You know what I mean? Um, and so, so that's something that I'll never forget really, you know, when being there and witnessing that. Um, but yeah, at that finish line, I was like, uh, this can't happen anymore, guy. Like you're not committed. What are you doing? You're playing golf like four days a week, like cutting training to go like you're cutting training. You're just not devoted. You're not, you're not, you used to be devoted. I didn't have any money. You know what I mean? Yeah. I didn't have any money. So I, when I went to Raleigh, North Carolina in 2000, uh, 2014, and Aaron and I drove to Raleigh, it was whatever, 12-hour drive. And I was like, I, either I finish on this podium or I literally have to stop doing this because I have no money. And so I finished on that podium. I finished second. Matt Charbot was Matt Charbot won. I was running him down. He gave me one more mile. I was winning that thing. But I made enough money in that race that I was able to like I had like a profit at the end. And at the end of the day, I mean, it's a carnal piece that like, you got to eat. You got to pay for your rent. And that's that then motivated me. And I got I, I was there was nothing else in life. There was nothing. I was fully dedicated. And somewhere along the line, and I believe part of that was success. 
was I, 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 my commitment, I was like, oh, this is good. This is cozy, you know, and my commitment deteriorated. And that's what you saw in 2018 and 19. And anyways, long story short, I started working with David again. That's the, that's the lesson. I started working with someone who gives a nice bird's eye perspective, who keeps me honest, who critiques me when I'm doing stupid stuff. Cause I do stupid things sometimes when I'm doing good stuff says, Oh, that looks good. Keep doing that. That's a, these are good behaviors. And just having that, keeping you accountable, extremely important for me. I love it. So when you look back on these years as a triathlete, what do you look at as your, as your toughest memory? You, maybe the hardest time you had either in a race or uh, in, in training. Kona 2019, I, I would say, was, is the worst. I went at that finish line. It, I was so dehydrated. I lost 17 pounds. And wait, wait, wait. You lost 17 pounds in one race. Oh, yeah. Yes. hundred percent in that race. <laughs> and that's just the beginning of it. I mean, there's more aspects to why I was so horrible other than just the losing 17 pounds. But the loss of 17 pounds, I was I probably should have went to the medical tent or whatever. But I, I love the of the thing like don't ever go to the medical tent unless you're literally passed out and they take you to the medical tent. That's where I come from. And so, you know, it took me literally an hour to walk from the finish line to, you know, you walk directly across and there's that hotel right on the corner with the pool and everything where the Hoka yep. guys park and stuff usually. Um, took me an hour to walk from there because I was like, I was like dry heaving and like, like shaking. Like I, I was just, I felt like I was like nearing death. And I said to my mom, I was like, I, I don't like this. I, I don't want to do this anymore. And like triathlon. That's what I was saying. I was like, this is stupid. I, I don't, I'm not having fun at all. And, you know, crying that saying this, like, this is, I don't want to do this. It's not, I don't, I didn't, I got into this to push myself to limits and stuff, which I pushed myself to a limit, but it wasn't really the limit that I wanted to push to, to, you know, when I got into triathlon, I wanted to go, my fondest memory is 2015 running side by side with Jan Ferdino and him dropping me after 5k. I was a mental, you know, mentally I was broken. That's why I got into it. I love that. This was something different in 2019. Um, and, and, and I already get explained to you what I believe, you know, led to this, this occurrence, but that was the worst time. Uh, you know, I sat on the couch for three hours, just, just trying to hold even just a little bit of Gatorade down. Um, and, and it was just a very humbling you know, Kona does that to you, has that effect on you sometimes. And that was the low for sure. When I was like, I think I might, I think I'm done. I think I'm good. I'm good. I think I'm gonna go do something else. So when you look at the happiest memory, it's not necessarily the, some of the wins. It's that, that moment of running side by side with Jan. Oh, battles, man. Battles, great battles. Yeah. It's all, it's all competition. And that's, that's sort of what I was trying to say with the, with the thing about the speedways is yes. The number one battle is always, we all dream of that battle in Kona. We all dream. And I had one. I mean, I, I got, I got, I did get a battle and I lost. <laughs> I did get one though. And it's still one of the finest memories of my whole life. That battle with, 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 uh, with Patrick. Yeah. Um, but yeah, those are my favorite moments. Jan 2015 in Oceanside, uh, Keenlay two times in, in Samarin. And Andrew Starkowicz in Racine 2014, I, I swam like five minutes down, something ridiculous. I biked like two minutes slower. And so I came off the bike with like an eight minute deficit and I ended up catching them with like half a mile to go. And it was my best run ever, 109.37 or something. 
those are my finest memories. See, sometimes I've won, well, I'm probably 50-50, right? I'm like, I won half and I lost half, but those are, those by far, those are things that you'll never, like, I believe when I'm old and like reflecting back on my life, those will come up as like the, the fun experiences that I'll never forget. What's, what's fascinating to me is, is you, when you look at everybody else's background as a professional athlete, very few came from the lows that you came from, right? With the drug addiction and, and all the downs that you had. I know that that's so far in the past for you, but is it something that you can draw on that, hey, I know where I was before. I know how awful my life was. And I'm a professional triathlete and I'm traveling the world and I've got people who love and care for me. Does that help motivate you? Or is that, is the, the down part so long ago that it's, that it's not something that motivates you anymore? Well, first off, I would say it's very, that story is very common in ultra endurance sports. So you'd be amazed actually of how common that story is uh, for better or worse. Uh, right. I mean, I think, I think we were wired in such a way that, you know, we have these extreme personalities that, you know, sometimes you get yourself into some trouble and then you sort of the lucky ones of us figure out like, oh, hang on a second. I'm pretty extreme. I need to control that. I need to direct that in a positive outlet. And so so I believe triathlon and ultra or just endurance sport in general is, is a phenomenal outlet for, for those extreme personalities. And I believe that's why you find a lot of us in these in this sport. Yeah. Um, but you know, from my perspective, I was given new life through triathlon. I, I didn't have, I didn't have any purpose. I didn't have meaning. I had no direction. And triathlon has given me everything. It's given me everything, truly everything. It gave me first and foremost, peace of mind and gave me, uh, self-confidence and, and self-esteem. That's probably the biggest one that I love myself again, because I hated myself. I looked in the mirror and I couldn't look in the mirror because I was ashamed of what I saw. And triathlon changed that for me. And then, of course, then, you know, let's, you know, the hierarchy of needs or whatever. Then I kept pursuing it. And then I was able to actually make a living and pay off my student loan, for instance. That's a, that was a goal. Like that was a that was a that's a big thing for me, because I remember 2010, I was living at a place and buddy who my roommate next door didn't know I was still home. And he's talking about me on the phone. And he was saying, oh, that Lionel, he needs to get a real job blah, blah, blah. Cause I was focusing on triathlon. I was like, I wanted to be, I want to be a triathlete. And so there you go. I, I, I paid that loan off this year. And in my mind, I was like, ha, suck it. So anyways, that's, that's, um, that, that reflecting back it, it, triathlon is my everything. It'll always be my, I mean, I will devote my life to triathlon even after my, my, my professional career is over because of what it's done for me. I want to, I want to be, I want to be, I still, this stuff makes me feel alive. I want to be part of the, I want to continue to be part of the professional side, even when I'm done competing, like, like something like Ferris was doing with, with Patrick. I, I would love to do something like that and have stable of athletes and, you know, tra even train with them and, and learn about them through training and learn their, their, their mental and physical, their, their power, their, their weakness, all these sorts of things and try and coach that and mold people to become the best that they can be. So I intend to devote my life to triathlon, but first and foremost, triathlon gave me a life to devote my life again. So you won Challenge Daytona last year and it was a good pro field, really nice pro field. This year, it's the probably one of the greatest pro fields ever assembled. What would it mean 
to you to, to win this race, to win the first ever PTO Middle Distance World Championship? Oh, Bob, uh, I mean, to be honest with you, I did two, I did 70.3 Worlds in 2016, and I was I was bitter because of the drafting and stuff. I just I was upset, you know. It's the best race I ever executed, 70.3, and I whatever. I'm not going to go into the details, but you know, I had the best absolute performance I ever had. The highest bike power, 365 watts. I ran the fastest run split from 10th place, like for no reason, just purely for pride. Um, and I was just so bitter about it. And I haven't done a 70.3 world since because I've pissed right off about it. But finally, I feel like I've come to terms with that thing inside my being. Um, and I mean, I want to do 70.3. I still want to win a 70.3 world title, man. Like, I think that's how I got into it. That's what's motivated me. My One of my best experiences was that 70.3 worlds 2014 where I, I like, it was, it was mind blowing. I got, I got Javier Gomez, Jan Fredino. And Tim Don, like these are like literally the, and then me. And it was, it was the most amazing experience. And I just, I feel like I got unfinished business. So uh, I, it's not a lot of time. You know what I mean? I, I got myself in a good 5k, a good one hour shape. Uh, my swimming is coming back really fast. It's not a ton of time. I will be there. I'll give my absolute best. But this for me is the beginning of my bid to try and win 70.3 world. So um I need to go find out where do I stand. I have to go into battle against Gustav Eiden, against Christian Blumenfeld. I got to see what these guys look like. I don't know what they look like in real life. I don't, I don't know what that feels like, this type of speed, this type of power, this type of swim speed. So this is, this is the beginning for me, really, of, a, of, an, of an endeavor that I left in 2016. I love it. And that's what's so great about this event is it does. It brings your Ironman and 70.3 and ITU guys together under one umbrella to find out who's the best badass there is. I can't wait. Uh, you know, money, whatever. It's cool. The money part's good, right? Like that's what brought us here. But at the end of the day, when that gun goes, it's, it's much more, it's much deeper than the money. And so um, I'm excited to go and take part with these guys and see what this is all about. This new crop of guys. Love it. Hey, Lionel, always appreciate all your time. I, I always enjoy every time we get to chat. You're, uh, you're doing some great stuff. I love to see the commitment. I, I can't wait to see you down in Daytona. Likewise, Bob. I wish we were in person. I wish we were on that cone of sand right now. But uh, good on you for keeping this going, keeping the tradition going, despite this uh, you know, not-so-great year. And, Thanks. yeah, man, next year we'll be on that sand again. Yes, we will. Lionel Sanders has been our guest. Breakfast with Bob. My name is Bob Babbitt. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Lionel, you are the absolute best. Take care of yourself. See you, Bob.